Welcome to episode 14 of Shellshocked. This week, we're investigating the belief in ghosts and hauntings, including an interview with skeptical paranormal claims investigators Brian and Baxter. Later, we'll have a science report about the rise of spiritualism in the 19th century, as well as a good news report from Maryland about how real scientists go about studying the belief in ghosts, hauntings, and other paranormal phenomena. So if you're ready, put on your ecto-goggles and strap on your proton packs, then brace yourselves for shell shock. It may surprise some of our listeners to learn that scientists are keeping track of things like Americans' belief in ghosts and the supernatural. And surveys generally find that despite all our technological advances, Americans are still pretty heavily on the side of true believers. In 2005, a Gallup poll found, get this Marilyn, 37% of Americans report that they believe in haunted houses. <laughs> And another 16% said they're not sure. <laughs> so we're talking about more than half of Americans at least are open to the idea or fully believe that haunted houses exist. Here's another interesting finding. Believe in haunted houses declines with age. Oh, really? So about 56% of a young adults defined as between 18 and 29 years of age believe in haunted houses. But that drops down to 39% by the time you're in, I'd say, middle age to late middle age. That's 30 to 49. But by the time you reach over the age of 65, it's only about a quarter. Mm. So it drops by about 50% or more. And, of course, you really can't have haunted houses without ghosts, so the Gallup poll has specific questions about belief in ghosts as well. Can you imagine? I mean, I think Gallup poll, it's like politics and religion and, you know, these kinds of important things. But they're asking about haunted houses <laughs> and ghosts. So, as you would expect, they parallel the statistics about hauntings because you can't really have a haunting without a ghost or something, right? So about a third of Americans, 32%, believe, and about a fifth, around 19%, say they're not sure. And as with haunted houses, again, belief in ghosts declines with age. Around 45% in early adulthood, dwindling down to around 22% in older adults. Hmm. So here's the part that surprises me the most, though. The tendency to believe in paranormal things like hauntings and ghosts varies with politics as well. Oh, really? There's I would not have predicted that. Political mm. ideology correlates very strongly with political conservatives having the lowest rates of belief at about 28%. Really? I would have I would have totally thought the other way around. Yeah, because you tend to think I think I do anyway, political conservatives they tend to be more religious, Exactly. Right? That's what I exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, so you would think, okay, well, they accept ghosts. I guess they think there's just a straight line up to heaven or hell um, because political conservatives think, nope, they don't stick around. Yeah, I guess, though, if you ask them uh, maybe, do you believe in angels, mm. that maybe that uh, would be a high correlation. Well, right? but I haven't I read know. the whole poll, yeah. but since they're talking about ghosts and haunted houses, why not? <laughs> 
And it's only about 40, or I should say, it's about 42% of moderates and 42% of liberals say that they believe in ghosts. Mm-mm-mm. Crazy. Why did we have all those Scooby-Doo episodes? <laughs> I shouldn't have taught us how to look at this. You pull the mask off and someone says, yeah, and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for these meddling kids. I mean, I do love me a good ghost story, though. Do you? you know, paranormal activity, the you know, all that kind of stuff. Love it. Yeah. But, you know, then and then I do go home, you know, kind of spooked. But, you know, I've primed myself to hear noises and stuff. But no, that doesn't make me believe in ghosts. And a lot of these movies say they're based on a real, yeah. you know, real happenings. And so. Yeah, they get away with that based on a yeah, lot. Mm-hmm. Or the newest one is inspired by true events. Mm-hmm. Inspired. <laughs> so there was a guy by that name and then just made the rest <laughs> of it up. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at these statistics, though, and I'm struck by the possibility that there's, there's another variable here that they're not looking at. As people get older, they generally become a bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to me that as we get a little more away from the kind of Marxist, socialist, idealistic youth, we become a little more centered, or if you're already centered, maybe a little more to the right. And then as you get older, you believe less in hauntings and ghosts. And I think they should look into that as well. But the Gallup polls generally just look at correlations. They don't really look at the causal stuff. Right. By the way, I can't watch scary movies. Oh, no? I've never been able to. No, like you said, you you go away a little spooked. I go away really spooked. (laughs) And as you know, I'm a rational guy. I mean, I like to think I am anyway. But there's something about innervating my sympathetic nervous system like that that fight or flight thing that does not go away and sometimes it can last for weeks oh wow so i'm just on edge i sleep with the light on i and i'm a grown-ass man (laughs) as they say and i don't believe in ghosts and all that but i just i can't do it interesting i can't watch um slasher movies and i can't well in that case i really do believe that those people exist i know they're extremely rare but you know, I still sit up at night, can't sleep, can't eat. Wow. So yeah. no. It'll be I'll be lucky to get through this interview that we have with Brian <laughs> and Baxter later about hauntings and, and you know, ghost hunts and all that stuff. You'll be up for nights. <laughs> that really, yeah. And by the way, lest you think this is all just belief based, um, and, and hearsay, a two thousand nine Pew Research Center study found that nearly one in five adults, 18%, say they've actually seen a ghost. Mm. Or at least been in the presence of a ghost. And an even larger number, 30%, say that they've, quote, felt in touch with someone who's already died. Creepy. Very creepy. That reminds me of the woman who claimed that she uh, was having sex with a ghost nightly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> felt She felt in touch with someone who had already died as well. I, I I thought I remember some some story about um, a guy. Uh, he was having an affair, and they found a blonde hair. Uh, you know, his wife found a blonde hair, and he claimed Uh-oh. it was from a ghost. Oh wow! That's when you have nothing else to think of, right? Like you're really bad at creating stories, and you uh, uh, it was a ghost. A ghost. Uh, yeah. And then did she believe? I him? think she did. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, maybe they're meant to be together. Exactly. If she's (laughs) going to fall for that, you know, then. So here's here's some last statistics, an even touchier issue. These numbers break down further by gender and by race and ethnic identity. Oh. 
females okay. outnumber males. It's not a huge margin, but it's 33% to 26% in belief in ghosts and haunted houses. Mm-hmm. But African Americans win the day. They outnumber white Americans by a full 12%, with an average of 29% of whites saying they've seen or been in the presence of a ghost, and over 40% of black people in the U.S. saying that they have. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't talk about religiosity here, and I think that might correlate because we look at the statistics and we find that overall most African Americans, and I know that's a statistic and I hope I'm using it correctly, most African Americans rate pretty religious. Mm-hmm. The the numbers of non-believers and avowed atheists and agnostics in African American culture, very small. So I think that might play some role there. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I would tend to think that also, um, and of course this is just based on my very limited scope of uh, what I, you know, what I know, but that Hispanics would probably also tend to believe in ghosts. Yeah, they showed Hispanics, and I don't have the statistics here in my notes, but it was nowhere near 40%. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was higher than uh, Caucasian Americans, Uh but lower, significantly lower than African Americans. Okay. Yeah, so maybe, again, it's the Catholicism thing, and they Mm -hmm. believe you don't stick around. I don't know much about Catholics, so I'll leave that to them to figure out. Okay. (laughs) You know, not only do people believe in haunted houses, people actually seek them out on vacations. Oh, yeah. I have a friend who is, um, who I think on on her honeymoon went to, to, uh, I believe it's in Colorado, where they filmed The Shining, the movie The Shining. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that hotel where, you know, the movie was based. And... Later on, Brian and Baxter will talk about their investigation of that uh, place. Okay. It's called the Stanley Hotel, and it is yeah, in Colorado. exactly. And so, um, yeah, I, I know for sure she does. And I actually stayed in a hotel. I can't remember the name right now, but it's in San Jose. And it's supposed to be haunted. And I, that's not why I stayed in it. But um, when I, once I got there, you know, they had pamphlets showing that, uh, you know, it's been there since for a long time. And it's uh, uh, people have heard things from coming from rooms where nobody stays anymore and all that kind of stuff. So wow. I do know that they are. Uh, and every time I go out um, to a city, for example, I was in London and Paris and stuff and and. I, New Orleans, all these places, you can take ghost tours, and, uh, nightly ghost tours. <laughs> <laughs> you won't find me doing that, but people do. Later on, you know, as I said, we'll hear an interview with skeptical ghost hunters Brian and Baxter, and they'll talk to us about their investigations. They even have haunted Denver dinners that they hold every <laughs> Tuesday night at a local restaurant called the Yak and Yeti, which is purportedly haunted. So apparently this is a very popular thing for people to do across the country. And there are literally thousands of such places across the U.S. alone. And this woman named Danica Sherlin, who works as the front desk manager at the famous uh, Colonial Inn in Concord, Massachusetts, she says that the favorite room for people is room 24. And it's the most requested room. And she says they call it the room with a viewing. (laughs) Because according to local lore, it's haunted and you'll probably have a ghost viewing there. And to nobody's surprise, a lot of people who've stayed in that room report that strange things happen. (laughs) And, you know, there are some specifics to go along with this haunting as well. It seems that 
This particular ghost is a Revolutionary War surgeon who cared for wounded soldiers at the inn in 1775. Well, you know, who knows if that backstory will will, uh, stand up to investigation. Uh, She said that not everybody's belief drives them towards staying in the room, though. They also have some visitors who say, put me as far away from that room as possible. (laughs) So there's, you know, there's ample evidence that people have been reporting sightings like this and, you know, strange experiences and all that stuff for at least as long as humans have been recording their experiences but you know i don't have to tell you that there's a lot of tv shows and movies out there that are driving this home and making it more popular than ever so you know this litany of ghost hunter reality shows has just flooded television over the last decade or so and some of them are just ridiculous i think the thing that bothers me most about some of these TV shows is that they pretend to be scientific investigations of hauntings which of course is ludicrous i mean How do you scientifically investigate something that's never been established to exist in the first place? What's a ghost even made out of, right? Ectoplasm. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say ectoplasm. We all learned that from uh, Ghostbusters, right? Ectoplasm. And what the hell is it made of? How do you detect ectoplasm? What does it smell like, you know? (laughs) What constitutes a haunting? Are these things corporeal beings that we're supposed to be able to touch? Or do they just go right through you? I mean, any strange sound, any even changes in temperature, oh, mm-hmm. they say, oh, that must have been a sign of the ghost. Really? Because yep. it got <laughs> cold in here? Maybe it's a drafty hotel. So, you know, it's strange sounds, especially mm-hmm. since they do them at night. You know, I think a lot of the psychological and emotional content has to be looked into. Why do ghosts come out at night? Are they allergic to the sunlight like vampires? <laughs> I think it's because... We're scared at night. Yet. You know, we're probably early humans and early mammals, you know, being diurnal creatures, they were naturally more skittish and a little more afraid at night. And so anything gets interpreted as having some nefarious intent. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Nickel, you know, the, the very well-known paranormal and uh, claims investigator, and, you know, he's looked into the Shroud of Turin and all kinds of um, very famous... Um, illogical, implausible claims over the decades. Uh, He said this over and over again in the 40-plus years that he's been investigating hauntings and things. And here's what he said in a recent interview. One reason that ghost-busting is such a thankless job is that it's so hard to wrap your arms around the evidence, or more appropriately, the lack thereof. No one is bringing you a ghost trapped in a bottle. (laughs) What they're offering is, I don't know. Over and over, they're saying something like, We don't know what the noise in the old house was or the white shape in the photo, so it must be a ghost. Mm -hmm. I think more likely they're just scared and, you know, a door is creaking or they they see something strange because their mind is playing tricks on them. And, you know, they end up interpreting it as being a sign of a haunting. And I don't think they're all faking it, although we have some pretty good examples from history of these things being faked for business reasons or otherwise. Uh, But I think people are just really getting... Mm-hmm. In their own heads. Yeah. It reminds me of that uh, game that I couldn't, I bet you couldn't do this either. I, or had you, have you heard of this where you're supposed to um, go down in a dark room and close your eyes in, in front of a mirror and, and say Bloody Mary three times? I have went, heard of that and I will not do it. Yeah, I could never, <laughs> I would be so scared of doing it when I was little. And if we're scared and, 
I'm scared yeah. now. So I'm certainly not going to, uh, you know, make fun of these people who are not yeah. skeptically minded and not educated in science and aren't willing to do it or interpret it that way because I totally get it. We all have the same nervous system. Mm -hmm. I wonder why we like, you know, to feel, why we'd like to get, I guess it, we like our sympathetic nervous system aroused, you know, but it's weird. Um, but I had read somewhere that, the amount of money that horror movies make is much greater than love stories. Uh -huh. And most of the time we would say we like to see, a, you know, we'd rather be happy than scared. Yeah. But but um, horror movies kill it in, the, in movie theaters. Well, I had a human sexuality uh, professor who I was very close with. Her name was Beth Rienzi. And unfortunately, she passed away recently after a long battle with breast cancer. So she's on my mind a lot. And when I was reading through some of this, I asked myself that question as well. Why are people so thrilled by this? Why are they asking to stay in room 24? <laughs> and, you know, she had an interesting take on it. She said, I don't know if there's science to back this up, but I'll tell you two answers for this. One of them is that when you take your date to a scary movie and she gets scared, she clings to you. And that feels good. And so we all laughed about that. And she said... And there's another piece of research as well, and you may have heard of this one. Psychologists have people go out on a rickety rope bridge and oh, yeah. stare mm -hmm. into each other's eyes for like a minute or so. <laughs> and of course, it's, you know, this rickety rope bridge that's over this huge ravine and it's kind of unnerving. And then they go back to their respective sides and they're surveyed. And the people who do that are more likely to rate the other person as being sexually attractive and even, mm -hmm. you know, possibly wanting to go out on a date with him or her, etc. So I think that when our nervous systems are aroused like this, it might actually have something to do with sex. It all goes back to sex, I guess. I tell you, you know, as much as we try to push <laughs> Freud down, he pops right back up again. <laughs> Maybe he's haunting psychology. Yeah, <laughs> oh. damn Freud. Always you. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll always being yeah. wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm interested in seeing what Brian and Baxter have to say, and I'm sure the listeners are too. So why don't we get to that now? Bring them on. On the line with me now are Brian Bonner and Matthew Baxter, otherwise known as Brian and Baxter. They are paranormal investigators who have examined the claims of all manner of claptrap from supernatural phenomena to psychics, UFOs, conspiracy theories, urban legends, and of course, ghosts and poltergeists. And they specialize in exposing frauds by using scientific skepticism to investigate the claims in the most rational manner possible given the circumstances. They're, in fact, so committed to this endeavor that they actually hold regular haunted Denver dinners every week in their hometown of Denver, Colorado, as part of the mission of their Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society. Incidentally, they're also the hosts of a weekly podcast of their own called Warning Radio. We've asked them to come on the show this week to talk about some of their investigations of hauntings, some of which have resulted in some very interesting findings at some of the country's most famous haunted places. Brian and Baxter, welcome to Shellshocked. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, uh, I will make a major announcement here. We are now known as the Claptrap Investigators. <laughs> all right. I, I just, that covers just, it all. 
thought I would get that out of my way there. I like that. I like that. Um, well, I am I am Baxter, if you can remember this voice. And, and I'm not. So, yeah. There we go. And, uh, you know, that intro was amazing. I have to say, I really appreciate it. It uh, th- There was a couple of things you threw in words like logic and stuff like that that completely caught me, caught me off guard. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, um, some would disagree that that would be complimentary, so we'll move on. First of all, I don't recall my guidance counselor mentioning that paranormal investigator was an option for me. So I'd like to know what got the two of you interested and involved in this kind of work, and what are your backgrounds? Well, you know, first of all, I would like to uh, commend your, uh, your your teacher there for not recommending this, uh, because, you know, unfortunately, it's a bad choice of something to do. It is. It is. It, it wasn't an option for us either. Uh, the thing is, is when I was young, I'd say about 11 years old, I saw the movie The Exorcist. Yeah. It scared the crap out of me. It really did. And the thing is, is I thought, oh, man, she is 13 years old in this movie. That means I have two years before I get possessed. Oh, no. So I started on this mission of trying to learn everything I could about my enemy uh, read every book I could find in the library. And really what I discovered is that every author had a different opinion and that anything paranormal or unexplained was based in opinion. And I thought, well, my opinion is just as good as theirs. So what I'm going to start doing is actually researching some established science instead. And uh, that's kind of what led me to where I am. I take it that's my intro there. That's your cue. Uh, well, I've always been uh, overly obsessed with horror movies, science fiction, things like that. And growing up, I was being told, you know, enjoy this because it's not real. This is all made up. And then all of a sudden, as I'm getting older, people are saying, this is real. I'm like, you know, I, I doubt it, but, you know, let's look into it and see. So I started looking at some people that were actually, well, supposedly investigating paranormal phenomena. And as it turns out, what they were doing, I didn't feel was quite exactly the way that it should be being conducted. So that's when I said, okay, let's just go out on my own and start a group and see what happens. And here I am decades later. Well, it's fascinating stuff. As you know, the topic for this week's Shell Shocked is ghosts and hauntings. And you two have made some pretty interesting forays into that realm. So what sorts of claims do people make about these kinds of things? And what have your investigations turned up that are maybe more reasonable explanations? Can you give us some idea? I can tell you right off the top. Uh, if it's a, say, a, a private you know, citizen that calls up, they give us a whole bunch of the standard type of things of, uh, I get weird feelings. Mm. Uh, my children, um, are having nightmares. The cats uh, or the dogs are acting funny. Yes, yes. The dog will bark occasionally and the cat will chase something that we can't see. I mean, it's things like that that are really ridiculous. Every once in a while, they get into the realm of, you know, it's the most terrifying thing in the world. I've been attacked. I've been pushed downstairs. I've been, uh, um, you know, the, the walls are bleeding. We get that kind of stuff. And, you know, we need your help immediately. And so we're like, okay, uh, we're going to come over at this time and uh, help you guys out. And then they go, well, I don't know if that's going to work. I mean, I've got to take the kids to soccer practice. And 
So suddenly this big emergency turns into a scheduling issue. Um, and that's when we know right there that, you know, they're, they're looking for attention more than they're looking for a solution to their confusion. Ah. But, uh, so we get a lot of those things. We have to go usually explain to them what they're actually experiencing, which in most cases is just a bit of imagination. Um, sometimes we can show them that the, that the hinge on one of their cabinets, uh, isn't set right. So the cabinet door keeps opening or we can show them that, you know, was the, the, the pipes in the basement aren't bracketed correctly. So when the hot water runs through it, they rattle. Um, and that, uh, often dogs are stupid and they will bark at anything. Well, <laughs> but we do run into the issue of, uh, a lot of the time we're not the first group that was called in. Uh, people like to, I don't know, paranormal investigator shop, I guess. And what happens is they'll have one or two other teams in there go in and say, oh, you've got demons or your, your great grandmother's haunting your house. Well, when we go in and find some sort of a legitimate explanation for it, they aren't capable of listening to us at that point because they've been so convinced by people that they considered to be experts telling them that they have demons in their house. So how do you go about investigating haunted places? What are the methods that you use? What kind of equipment do people need? Well, this is the part that that many skeptics might disagree with. But we do like taking equipment. We do like going and doing the stakeouts. Um, What we do is we set up a time to, uh, you know, of course, first we listen to the claims and Mm -hmm. we uh, kind of analyze the claims on, on what's being said is going on. Uh, well, you have to base what you're looking at off of each claim. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want to just go in and go, let's go catch a ghost. You have to go in and let's go find the truth about this claim. Uh, so we're paranormal claims investigators. It's a little different now. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll basically schedule the, the stakeout and we'll go and what we want the people to do. Now, this is all just if we're talking private citizens. What we want them to do is to carry on their night as they normally would stay Mm. up and watch TV as they normally would have dinner and go to bed at the normal time, have all the lights on the way they normally would. And don't, you know, we don't walk in and go lights out everybody. And you know, that kind of crap, because that's that's just not reality. But we set up cameras, we set up uh, thermometers, we set up, uh, um, Oh, microphones and and things like that. And we do uh, electromagnetic uh, field sweeps, and uh, we check for, you know, sound pressure. Uh, uh, we check for a, a seismological activity. Uh, we have a seismographs that we uh, uh, watch as well. Um, and the thing is, is a lot of people are like, hey, those things don't detect ghosts. Well, of course they don't. We're not there to catch a ghost. We're there to document the, the location. Right. And a lot of phenomena can be explained by excessive electromagnetic fields um, uh, in certain people, uh, certain people that have, uh, say, like an injury to their frontal lobe or things like that. They may not even realize they have it. They can have a predisposition to being affected by a heavy electromagnetic field. And the same goes for ultra-low frequencies or very low frequencies. Uh, those can affect people, make them feel feelings of dread, like somebody's behind them, uh, have hallucinations. All these things happen. Uh, because of these very normal factors that that uh, can go on in people's homes. So we try to look for those to see if we can find 
everyday explanations. We don't use these pieces of equipment to find ghosts. And that's the difference. So the people that uh, are very, very opposed to it, um, they're not going to find the information that we find and probably not get come up with the explanations that we come up with. I'm especially interested in your investigation of the famed Stanley Hotel. So I know you've told this a thousand times probably, but maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about that hotel and how you went about investigating it. I don't remember investigating the Stanley, actually. (laughs) Yeah, we went to the Stanley. (laughs) Um, Uh, Liar. Well, let's see. Uh, Yeah, no kidding. Uh, It's false memory we're we're working on here. Uh, Basically, what happened is... Well, we've been there multiple times. We've we've been there multiple times, but the reason that uh, we got so deeply involved in this is we were contacted by a production company that was claiming to be doing a documentary on the Stanley Hotel. And would we come up and be the paranormal investigative team? Well, it's in our backyard and, you know, it's a big reported haunt. Sure, we will. Well, we find out after the fact, they state that the claim is the hotel is haunted because of large deposits of quartz, magnetite, and limestone that are underneath the hotel. Now, before you go on, we should probably also mention that this is a very well-known hotel. This is the hotel that supposedly inspired Stephen King's book, The Shining. Absolutely. So everyone knows about this hotel. Unfortunately. (laughs) Okay. Continue. Well, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about the ghost stories here, too. Uh, Back pre-ghost hunters visiting the building, uh, they ran into a bit of an issue that uh, there was a book being written about the ghost stories of the Stanley, and they realized they didn't have enough. There were a few ghost stories there, some really cool classic ones, but it wasn't really enough to make a book. Now, there was a lodge down the street, uh, it's known as the Elkhorn Lodge, and they were being sold. So the author got a hold of the owner of the Elkhorn Lodge and said, uh, you guys are selling, can I borrow some of your ghost stories? And they said, absolutely, we're, we're, we don't care what you do with them. What? So a lot of the ghost stories from the Stanley have been migrated from over there. Wow. And... It wasn't that well-known of a haunt. It was more of just a, that's the place that The Shining was written about, until the ghost hunters were there. All of a sudden, it became the hottest spot in the world for ghost hunting. Wow. But when we got called in for this documentary, we shot the footage and then found out that this whole thing was based on the whole minerals underneath the property concept. And they said that, it caused some sort of a uh, piezoelectric effect, which made the hauntings happen. Uh, this wonderful claim was uh, brought to life through the conclusions of the guys from Ghost Hunters. But before you go on, Brian, uh, yeah. are, are, Sheldon, are you aware what we're talking about when we say piezoelectric effect? I am only vaguely aware, so maybe you can describe that. Well, it's basically uh, talking about having... Uh, a, a, something that's basically a crystal, uh, something that, that's a, of a fair size that they apply or there, a lot of pressure is applied to it. And when enough pressure is applied, it will actually create electricity. Okay. So you have to have an actual piece. Right. You have to have things. large pieces and large pressure. Yes. Got it. And the larger the piece, the larger the pressure, the larger the field. 
Uh, well, the thing is, the ghost hunters had come up with this conclusion because they went to the best source they could for any science, uh, which would have been the gift shop at the Stanley Hotel. <laughs> and they said, so what exactly is causing the hauntings? They went, well, it's all the minerals underneath the property. Well, when we found out about that uh, being the, the premise of the documentary, we decided to look into it. So I started calling around to everybody I could think about as far as uh, geological contents. What are mm. the minerals under the place? And that's when I discovered that it's actually the uh, Department of Agriculture that's in charge of soil surveys for the country. Okay. So I sent them an email, and I was completely honest. I said, here's the claim. I just want to know what's under it. And they were very quick in sending, well, they were very quick in sending the first one back. And they said, we've done absolutely no soil surveys for about a 10-mile radius around there. And you know, they might as well have not done anything because that's just, you have to do close areas to get that kind of data. So they said we did do a geomagnetic satellite survey of the area, and there's no variations at all. Here's a copy of it. Enjoy. And we thought that it had kind of died at that point, but we were willing to say, nobody knows. Quit saying it's proof. A few months later, I get an email back from, well, our favorite government office at that point, and apparently it had bounced around a lot of other offices because now the title of the email was Ghosts in Our Soils. But uh, And it was them requesting us to get them access to the Stanley Hotel because they wanted to conduct a soil survey. Wow. And us, the little no-name paranormal team out in Denver, were going to be the, the intermediaries between the government and the hotel to get this set up. Not no-name for long. Well, and <laughs> the thing is... Uh, we don't know. We were a little tiny nobody that shouldn't do this, so we did it. And for, was two days, right? Yes. We conducted uh, legitimate soil surveys out there. We had electromagnetic induction, ground-penetrating radar, plain old soil scientists digging in the dirt, and we had a ball. And we actually got to play scientist for, for a while there. And it was really interesting learning about all the, the different techniques that they have. And we had four branches of the U.S. government out there. And we spent a lot of your tax money, so thank you. You're welcome. Uh, but I think the results were uh, amazing. And uh, go ahead and uh, disclose the, the wonderful results we got. Dirt. Yeah. That's kind of it right there. Dirt. <laughs> Underneath the Stanley Hotel is a large formation of dirt and, and bedrock. And bedrock. And the thing is, is the dirt is made up of quartz, magnetite, and limestone, and granite, and several other things. But it is all ground into a powder, which means it is impossible to get a piezoelectric effect off of it. So can I predict dirt. what the response was from the owners of the hotel? Give it a shot here. Let's check your psychic abilities. They admitted they were wrong. They apologized profusely, and they stopped reporting hauntings. How'd that I would have been so cool. <laughs> well, and we went to an extreme. We printed up the report with our investigation as well, but with a copy of the government report that said it's dirt. 
And not only did we take it to the hotel, but at the hotel, we handed it over to all of the members of the Ghost Hunters TV show and said, stop it. There's some cool ghost stories here. If you want to tell them, fine. But none of this silly piezoelectric mineral thing, because that's just not what's happening. Uh, not only did they continue telling the story, but a year almost to the day uh, from the last time that we were up there handing those out, the um, ghost adventurers were up there doing a live broadcast. And they were under the hotel, in the tunnels, with the paranormal expert from the hotel, and she claimed that, well, those very minerals were there. So our investigation and reports pretty much didn't do anything. Yeah, wow. even even the documentary that we were in, we gave them the information, and they lied. Yeah, they spun it and said, and they did find these types of minerals underneath the building. Which well, technically it, it, was true, as you exactly. said. Exactly. But not to the degree that it created this piezoelectric effect. Yes, exactly. they, they lied by emission. Well, and it's kind of interesting because the name of the movie, don't ever watch it, uh, it's called... Uh, the Stanley Effect, a piezoelectric nightmare. Catchy. Now, think of yourself as a nice, happy little family that doesn't care about the paranormal or anything like that. It's just, you know, mom and dad and the kids out for the summer vacation. Do you want to stay at some place that's advertising itself as a piezoelectric nightmare? The word nightmare itself would keep me away. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cover this one, uh, Forrest Baxter, the, uh, the final straw in the, uh, <laughs> the, fun well it was about was it two years later yeah year later uh we went up there um dr karen stolzno joined us on that uh trip back up there and uh we were up there doing an investigation for an author who was writing another book on this haunted stanley hotel and uh, we were her team to go up and and uh try to speak logic to uh to people um, while we were up there, we were given amazing access to the hotel again. And one of the things we wanted to do was look at the claim, the other claims the ghost hunters had made. And they had made claims about room 401, uh, you know, that this glass had broken that was next to Jason's bed and then the closet door opened and closed and it was all very mysterious. Well, actually, we got to speak with Jason about that and it got cleared up. Uh, on exactly what happened, and it wasn't what was televised. Um, basically, it was a hot glass fresh out of the dishwasher from downstairs. He poured ice water into it, and it cracked. Oh. Nothing paranormal about it. Um, the closet door doesn't close very well, and it's backed up against the very loud, noisy, old, old, old elevator. So it will tend to open and when the elevator goes up and down. Nothing paranormal there either. So we went up there with a seismometer and just checked the vibrations in that room. And they are ridiculous uh, whenever the elevator goes. But the other one was Grant was over in the manor house, which is a kind of a smaller replica of the Stanley right next door. And uh, when they were doing their investigation, he was checking uh, or he was videotaping and his tape had run out. So he was sitting down at this large, heavy oak table and changing the tape when the table jumped and, uh, you know, they all screamed and act like really professional investigators. Uh, the end of the show, 
they determined let's let's call it a ghost. Might as well. Might as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was their that was their uh, actual actual words. Might as well. Wow. So we decided that we were going to go in there, exact same table, and do a recreation of it. So we did. It's actually about a three pound press board table. It's not a heavy oak table at all. And uh, Brian and I levitated it with our pinkies, you know, and everything. And uh, <laughs> so we did a little recreation of it. And then Brian posted it on YouTube. Now, the interesting thing is this is where the paranormal side of it comes into it. And I'll let Brian take back over. Yeah, the, the owners of the hotel tracked me down that night, which I don't know. That's kind of quick and weird. Yeah. And uh, proceeded to tell me. You guys are going to take down that video. Oh. And I said, I don't think so. Why would I want to do that? And they said, well, you don't know what you're talking about because the ghost hunters are right. And and you guys, you, you just don't know what you're doing. And, you know, then they said, and you're going to impact what's going on up there, which I think was the big part. Yeah. So I, I said, no, we are giving a honest opinion, a second opinion of what may have happened up there you know i'm just trying to leave it as open as possible and they were just you know if you don't take it down you're never coming back up here again so the threat was you'll be banned from the hotel exactly which we kind of wear as a badge of honor at this point (laughs) you may be the only people who have been banned from the hotel so that's quite an honor yeah, we have an ongoing great. list of places, though. So. <laughs> well, for various reasons, I'm sure. So you mentioned finding nothing several times. Let me ask you this. Have you, in your investigations over all these years, found any good evidence whatsoever for the existence of ghosts, hauntings, poltergeists, etc.? No. Other than the time Baxter was possessed. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's like, not possession. That's his personality. That's true. <laughs> Let's be scientific about this. So nothing. Fine. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's guess... pretty much it. 25 years down the drain. Yep, nothing. Yeah, your parents must be so proud. <laughs> yep. I should probably mention I'm being particularly sarcastic because Brian and Baxter are old friends of mine, so I wouldn't <laughs> normally speak to a guest like this. But <laughs> Everybody so speaks to us like this, so it doesn't really feel that unusual. <laughs> it feels like home. So where can people go to learn more about Brian and Baxter and the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society and everything you guys are up to? Well, the two main websites are Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research, uh, RockyMountainParanormal.com, rather. And the other one is BrianandBaxter.com. Great. We'll link to those in the show notes. Well, Brian and Baxter, thank you so much for being on Shellshock. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Science Report. On a warm spring day in 1848, a religion was born. The unlikely leaders of this new belief system were Margareta Maggie Fox and her sister Kate, ages 14 and 11. On that day, 
the sisters excitedly called a neighbor into their home in Hydesville, New York, to tell her about some strange noises they'd heard every night. They told the understandably skeptical woman that each evening around bedtime, they heard loud, distinctive rapping sounds on the walls and even the furniture, each of which seemed to have purpose and a form of intelligence. The neighbor joined the girls and their mother, Margaret, in the girls' bedroom for the promised demonstration. Count three, commanded the mother, and not a moment later, the room cracked with three distinct raps. Now count fifteen, and again the rapping responded correctly. Asking for the neighbor's age, the rapping counted thirty-three, their nervous neighbor's correct age. Things got even more creepy when it answered in the affirmative that it was indeed an injured spirit. Apparently not taking into account that this was all taking place on March 31st, the eve of April Fool's Day, the Fox family promptly sold their house and sent the girls to live with their older sister Leah in Rochester. Had it not been for this relocation, the story may have ended here. But as it happens, the Finger Lakes region of New York was at that time abuzz with religious activity. It was, after all, the birthplace of Mormonism, as well as Millerism, the precursor to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it wasn't long before people in their community heard about the Fox sisters' story and came calling. Many had by now added to the story, maintaining that the spirit the girls had communicated with in their home was a peddler who died on their property many years earlier, and even proclaiming that strands of hair and bone fragments had later been found in the cellar after their departure. Among the curious were community leaders and longtime residents Isaac and Amy Post. The Posts asked Leah and the girls over, hoping to make contact with a spirit in their own home. Mr. Post would later reminisce about the event, stating, I suppose I went in with as much unbelief as Thomas felt when he was introduced to Jesus after he ascended. All that changed, though, when Mr. Post heard for himself, Very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers. The Fox girls even communicated for a time with the post-deceased daughter, prompting them to rent the largest hall in Rochester and invite the public to witness the girls' abilities for themselves. Over 400 community members came to hear the strange noises, after which Amy Post took the girls into a private room where they disrobed and were examined by a small group of skeptics, none of whom could find any evidence of a deception. What the Fox sisters were proposing was not unheard of, of course. The Bible itself contains many references to communication with angels, some of whom were the dead spirits of men. And the practices of Andrew Jackson Davis, a 19th century seer, had famously combined the quack medical ideas of 17th century physician Franz Anton Mesmer with the spiritual beliefs of an 18th century Swedish philosopher named Emanuel Swedenborg who introduced the idea that a number of spirit worlds await us after death, and who claimed to see and talk with spirits on each of these planes of existence. Davis and his followers believed that the Fox sisters were merely a manifestation of his prediction of an era in which man could regularly commune with the spirit world. The Fox sisters' visit to Davis's home had created quite a ruckus, and combined, their notoriety and seeming legitimacy catapulted each to a new level of fame and guaranteed the rise of the American obsession with spiritualism. At least part of the appeal, according to religious historians, was the fact that Americans had grown weary of the depressing dogma of Calvinistic doctrine. They much preferred the teachings of spiritualism, 
which said that our fate was well within our control, and that insight gleaned from spirits who had already passed over could help ensure salvation and happiness after death. The sisters quickly became the darling children of this new optimistic movement, and professional tours, interviews with major newspaper and magazine reporters, as well as word of mouth, spread the news of the Fox sisters across the country and around the world. Fittingly booked at the parlor in the Barnum Hotel, owned by a cousin of the famed showman, dozens of attendees gathered around the girls for $1 per person, the equivalent of about $30 in today's money, and asked questions or simply observed as spirits seemingly knocked out messages on doors, walls, and the floorboards beneath them. These gatherings drew an eclectic crowd, which even included the elite of American society. New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley, the author James Fenimore Cooper, poet William Cullen Bryant, and even famed abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison were among those present when the Spirit spelled out the message, Spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform, delighting the crowd and prompting cheers. It wasn't long before older sister Leah got into the act, proclaiming herself to be clairvoyant and seeing patrons in a part of the hotel now designated the seance room. Not everyone was so accepting of the Fox sisters' claims, however. Upon their arrival in town, an article in Scientific American proclaimed them the spiritual knockers from Rochester, and scoffed at their assertion of special supernatural powers. Another skeptic, famed explorer Elisha Kent Kane, declared them frauds outright. Admitting that he could not determine the source of their con, he did manage, however, to fall in love with Maggie and soon began encouraging her to leave what he referred to as a life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. She finally relented and quit, and they married to settle down together, shortly before Cain's untimely death. Partly to honor his memory, Maggie soon after converted to Catholicism, as her husband had always wanted her to do. Apparently not dealing well with the loss, she also began to drink heavily. Younger sister Kate also married, but her husband was a devout spiritualist who helped her develop her abilities. Her performances quickly increased in complexity, not to mention entertainment value. Translating two messages simultaneously, she also included spirit writing and blank cards upon which words would inexplicably appear. Perhaps not surprisingly, business boomed during and after the Civil War. With so many war dead, grieving family members were desperate to receive some small communication that their sons, brothers, and husbands were all right on the other side. By the 1880s, estimates put the number of spiritualists in the U.S. and Europe at over 8 million. Due to the high demand and tediousness of the routine, Kate soon began to tire of the whole affair, and like her sister, to drink. After many years and countless shows, Maggie announced a performance that would prove to be like no other. It was covered by the New York World, who noted that she had clearly been drinking, as well as the fact that she had been paid $1,500 for the appearance. But it soon became clear that her main motivation was revenge. This, combined with no small degree of anger and frustration, would prove her undoing, and would finally reveal the deception she and her sisters had been perpetrating for over 40 years. After addressing the audience and thanking them for coming, Maggie launched into an outright tirade against her sister Leah, as well as other spiritualists, for publicly complaining of her drinking and for suggesting she was an unfit mother. She continued, My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began. 
At night, when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. The girls also found that they had an unusual ability to continuously pop the joints in their toes, creating a sound that would similarly rebound through floors and walls. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It's a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me years ago when I lived in 42nd Street, and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. To the shock and amazement of those present, Maggie continued the disclosure with a demonstration of the rapping by removing a shoe and positioning her foot against a wooden stool. As the New York Herald described the spectacle, there stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow, working her toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous, the next it was weird. Maggie drew further shock from those attending when she announced that her older sister Leah had known all along that the rappings and other communications from spirits had been fake, and that she and younger sister Kate had been exploited and controlled for want of fame and money. She ended the session by proclaiming her thanks to God that she had been given the opportunity to expose spiritualism once and for all. Perhaps naively, mainstream media predicted that this announcement would be the death blow for spiritualism. But shortly after Maggie's confession, spiritualists across the country began taking sides and rallied to explain away every facet of what she had said. Some offered sympathy, stating that Maggie had been influenced by darker, more nefarious spirits who wanted their existence to return to secrecy. Others proclaimed a more selfish motive, claiming that she was no longer able to make a living from spiritualism, and that now she simply wanted to earn money by criticizing the movement. For her part, Maggie recanted the entire confession less than a year later, contending that the spirit guides had asked her to do so. But it didn't work. This only prompted further rejection on the part of mainstream spiritualists, and she soon found herself persona non grata in the world of spiritualism. Regardless, she later continued to reveal other tricks, including spirit writing and similar deceptions used at seances. She never reconciled with her sister Leah, who died in 1890. Younger sister Kate died two years later after years of alcoholism, and Maggie only eight months after that. She was 64 years old. Although the golden age of spiritualism has come and gone, it still exists as a thriving minority belief system in various forms around the world. Even in the technologically advanced countries of the West, a surprising percentage of well-educated people still believe that we live on after death in some conscious form, and that those disembodied spirits sometimes make contact with the living. Although it can be relatively harmless, this belief is not without some degree of danger. Psychologists are quick to point out that when a loved one dies, we enter a delicate and important grieving process that allows us to minimize the long-term emotional and psychological impact, and to finally come to terms with the loss and find peace. Those using charlatanism to delay or derail that process by claiming to have made contact with the dead can do more harm than good, and when coupled with a later realization that it was all done for financial gain, the results can be devastating. The upside is that there is a growing movement called skepticism that combats these fakers daily. A long list of prominent stage performers of past, such as Harry Houdini, 
and if present, such as James Randi and Banachek, as well as well-known psychologists like Richard Wiseman, not to mention grassroots organizations such as the Bay Area Skeptics, offer alternatives to unfounded and non-scientific paranormal beliefs. And with all our efforts combined, hopefully we can someday eradicate the need for beliefs that are somewhat comforting, but ultimately risky and untrue. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is the good news. Today's story is about parapsychologist Dr. Carolyn Watt. Why am I doing a story on a parapsychologist on a skeptical podcast? As you'll see, she's one of the good guys. This story was originally reported in the Edinburgh News. Oh, and listeners, this week in particular, although I tried very hard to find the correct pronunciation of places and people, please forgive any of my mispronunciations. Okay, on with the story. Parapsychologist. It's the profession made famous by the 1984 hit movie Ghostbusters, conjuring up images of haunted houses, whacking machinery, and terrifying encounters. But sitting in her ordinary-looking office, parapsychologist Dr. Watt is quick to dispel any lingering cliches about what she does for a living. But first, let me give you a little biographical information on Dr. Watt. Dr. Carolyn Watt obtained her first degree in psychology from the University of St. Andrews in 1984, the year in which the University of Edinburgh announced that it would host the Kessler Chair of Parapsychology. The first Kessler professor, Robert L. Morris, took up his post in late 1985. A few months later, Morris recruited Carolyn Watt as his research assistant. Having been awarded a psychology PhD supervised by Morris on the topic of perceptual defensiveness and extrasensory perception, Dr. Watt continued to conduct parapsychological research and teach at the university's Department of Psychology, first as a research fellow and then senior research fellow. Dr. Watt worked with Bob Morris until his death in 2004. She was then appointed to a senior lectureship in psychology, her current position. In 2004, she became a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the BL Foundation. She served as president of the Parapsychological Association, or PA, from 2004 to 2005, and held a position on the PA board from 2003 to 2009. In October 2010, she was awarded the position of Perot Warwick Senior Researcher to support a program of research into precognitive dream experiences. Born in 1962 in Perthshire, Scotland, Dr. Watt lives in Edinburgh with her two sons. Now, back to our story. The friendly 52-year-old might investigate ghosts and psychic abilities, but she insists it's nothing like the films and TV shows. And in an attempt to blast away the tired old stereotypes, the mysterious Kessler Parapsychology Unit she heads up will be opening up its doors for the first time ever this month as part of the Fringe. The Edinburgh Festival Fringe is the largest arts festival in the world and takes place every August for three weeks in Scotland's capital city. From August 15th to the 22nd, brave visitors will be taken to a windowless laboratory deep in Edinburgh's University's George Square buildings and given the chance to show off their own psychic abilities, or at least have a go at learning to fake it. 
Dr. Watt wanted to do something to basically draw the public's attention to the unit because there's a lot of misinformation about parapsychology out there and people don't really know what it is that parapsychologists do. They think about Ghostbusters the movie. And so this is an event that's designed to be fun and interactive, but also to inform people about parapsychology, how you can fool yourself about psychic abilities, and how if you're a parapsychologist, you would conduct a control test. Under the tutelage of Dr. Watt, the audience can turn their hand to a raft of paranormal techniques designed to test psychic abilities, including the Gansfeld experiment. In a typical Gansfeld experiment, a receiver is placed in a room relaxing in a comfortable chair with halved ping pong balls over the eyes, having a red light shown on them. The receiver also wears a set of headphones through which white or pink noise is played. The receiver is in this state of mild sensory deprivation for half an hour. During this time, a sender observes a randomly chosen target and tries to mentally send this information to the receiver. The receiver speaks out loud during the 30 minutes, describing what he or she can see. This is recorded by the experimenter, who is blind to the target, either by recording onto tape or by taking notes, and is used to help the receiver during the judging procedure. In the judging procedure, the receiver is taken out of the Gonsfeld state and giving a set of possible targets, from which they select one which most resembled the images they witnessed. Most commonly, there are three decoys along with the target, given an expected rate of 25% by chance over several dozen trials. The Gonsfeld experiments are among the most recent in parapsychology for testing telepathy. Consistent, independent replication of Gonsfeld experiments has not been achieved. Looking for evidence of psychic powers is an area the Kostler unit, currently the UK's only endowed chair of parapsychology, has specialized in since it was set up in 1985. This year, the department is celebrating its 30th anniversary, a landmark that contributed to its decision to throw open its doors to the public. Over three decades, its students and academics have produced heaps of detailed studies on everything from near-death experiences to dreams that apparently predict the future. But despite some of the unit's carefully constructed tests coming up with positive results, Dr. Watt insists she's yet to come across any concrete evidence for the supernatural. The Kostler Parapsychology Unit is trying to examine whether or not people have psychic ability and also looks at the normal explanations for paranormal experiences, she says. In many cases, perhaps in all cases, in the real world, there are often normal psychological factors going on. For example, just straight coincidences. Every now and then, you'll have a dream that will correspond to a future event. We all dream several times every night and we forget most of our dreams. But if an event happens that reminds us of our dream, we may think we predicted it. We forget all the dreams we had that didn't come true and that didn't match events. Dr. Watts states that there's a lot of normal psychology in parapsychology, which is why the unit sits quite comfortably within a psychology department. At least half of what she does looks at that side. What's not psychic but looks like it. She adds, one way that people have contact with claims of psychic abilities is through going to see mediums or visiting psychic readers like clairvoyants. These are people who claim to be able to tell you something about yourself, about your future, through paranormal means. What she tries to show in the Fringe event is that we give out a lot of information about ourselves without even realizing it, without even speaking, actually. 
You can make a lot of educated guesses about a person's lifestyle, health, social class, background, and their family circumstances. Depending on their age, we all go through certain phases of life. For example, at Dr. Watts' age, you start worrying about parents being ill and dying. So she does some demonstrations where she asks members of the audience to write on a slip of paper something about themselves that they wouldn't mind other people knowing. And then she has the audience try to guess who it is that, for example, learned to unicycle when they were 10 years old. She has the audience try to play the psychic. But searching for evidence of psychic abilities, sometimes called extrasensory perception, or ESP, or the sixth sense, isn't the only thing that takes up Dr. Watts' time. She might balk at the popular image of parapsychologists as something akin to the Scooby-Doo gang, but that doesn't mean she hasn't done a fair bit of ghost hunting and debunking in her time. Back in 2009, Dr. Watt and her partner, Richard Wiseman, the renowned psychology professor and TV host, launched a project in conjunction with the Edinburgh International Science Festival where they asked the public to send in photographs of ghosts. After a public vote for the spookiest snap, they were left with a spine-tingling picture showing a strange figure lurking in the shadows of a window opening at Tantalon Castle in East Loathian. The baffled photographer claimed there was no one present at the time the image was taken and no actors at the castle in period costume, leaving the presence of the phantom a mystery. Experts, meanwhile, said the image did not appear to have been digitally altered in any way. But Dr. Watt and Professor Wiseman were able to cast doubt on the photograph after going back to the exact spot it was taken and recreating it with Wiseman clad in a black cape playing the part of the ghost. Dr. Watt explained that they were able to almost exactly recreate the look of the photograph. That doesn't prove it wasn't a ghost, but what it does suggest is that it could well have been a person that just got caught while he was taking a photograph and the photographer just didn't notice at the time. In other collaborative research led by Professor Richard Wiseman, Dr. Watt has investigated the psychological and physical factors that may cause people to report unusual experiences in such locations. The research has taken a systematic approach, in effect turning the haunted location into a psychological laboratory. These studies have been conducted at Hampton Court Palace and in Edinburgh's vaults. By asking people to pinpoint places they had felt uneasy, the academic hoped to take a systematic look at the paranormal and discover what physical conditions could be contributing to the feelings of fear. Volunteers visited different parts of the locations, some haunted, some not. Participants completed questionnaires about any unusual sights or sensations that they experienced and marked the location of these experiences on a floor plan. Prior to touring the locations, participants also completed questionnaires about their paranormal beliefs and their prior knowledge and expectations of the venues. In addition to these psychological measures, they measured various physical characteristics of the locations. And what she discovered was disappointingly mundane. In a lot of cases, people were simply responding to basic things, such as the size of the room. In large, dark spaces, people naturally felt more afraid and attributed this to the presence of the supernatural. These are some of the foundings that Dr. Watt and Professor Wiseman found that those who believe in ghosts report a greater number of ghostly experiences than disbelievers. Shocking, I know. 
that even when volunteers have no prior detailed knowledge of the location's reputation, experiences tend to cluster in particular hotspots, those that have a prior history of haunting experiences. The hotspots tend to be relatively poorly lit, to be relatively large in area, and may show greater geomagnetic activity. These results suggest that these physical factors may trigger unusual experiences in some sensitive individuals. But Dr. Watts, who insists she hates the word debunking and its implication that the aim is to undermine someone, admits she's much more at home in her lab working with ordinary members of the public than she is out and about chasing ghouls. And while concrete evidence of the paranormal might still be a long way off, she insists her field has advanced in leaps and bounds since the Edinburgh Department first opened its doors 30 years ago. One of its main achievements, she thinks, has been helping the discipline get a foothold in mainstream academia. About one in four people have had an experience they think is paranormal. As a psychologist, as well as a parapsychologist, that's very interesting to her. Well, I certainly wish I could attend this fringe event. It sounds like a hoot. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, that's it for this week, and thanks again for listening to the show. Be sure and listen next week, too, when our guest will be musician and podcaster George Harab, who will be discussing the role of music in the creation of social movements. George is an interesting and entertaining talent, and I'm sure you'll want to hear what he has to say. Thanks also for visiting our Facebook fan page and clicking like. And even if you've already done that, make sure that your settings allow you to see the posts that we put there. We do try to keep you informed of everything we're up to, and Facebook is just an easy way to do that. So once again, thanks for listening, and until next week, you've been shell-shocked.